Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jeremy Levin. Jeremy is the CEO of New York-based Ovid Therapeutics. Ovid is doing interesting work for rare neurological diseases, but that's not why I invited Jeremy onto the show. Jeremy is the chairman of the board at the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. It's his job to lead on advocacy for the biotech industry in Washington, D.C. This is the most perilous time ever to be the chairman of Bio. Biotech and pharmaceuticals have become public enemy number one. Approval ratings are down in the single digits, worse than even big tobacco. People were angry with Martin Shkreli as the personification of pharma greed in the last presidential election cycle, but they're absolutely furious and demanding radical change to curb healthcare profiteering this time around. Kicking the can down the road, pointing fingers at the middlemen, ignoring bad actors in their midst, assuming everything would just blow over in time, those political strategies from yesteryear didn't work out so well for biotech. Jeremy knows he must do better as bio chair, and the industry as a whole has got to get its house in order. This interview was recorded February 10th at the Bio CEO and Investor Conference in New York. Jeremy spoke with me after he delivered an alarming state of the industry message. He called it the best of times scientifically and the worst of times politically. He warned not just of the threat of price controls from single-payer government healthcare plans or from an international price indexing plan, but also about the threat of private insurance consolidation that could squeeze the profits out of drug development. You'll hear my frustration come through with this dismal state of affairs. It didn't have to go this far or get this dire. Given the grave nature of this political moment, I decided not to discuss Jeremy's personal background in this episode. We had a lot to cover. To learn more about his personal backstory, which is actually quite interesting, I recommend you listen to a previous interview Jeremy did on the Nature Biotechnology First Rounders podcast in December 2016. You can find the link to that show in the summary on TimmermanReport.com. Now, a couple messages before we start. Join me at the Washington State Convention Center in Seattle on April 7-8 for the 20th Annual Life Science Innovation Northwest Conference. Kicking off an exciting program is James Sabri, Global Head of Pharma Partnering at Roche. Additionally, I will be interviewing Dr. Amy Abernethy, Principal Deputy Commissioner at the FDA, in a fireside chat. Visit www.lifesciencewa.org for more information and use the promo code 2020LUKE, all one word, capital L, to save $100 on your registration fee. Now before we start, if you like the long run and you don't already subscribe to Timmerman Report, you're missing out. One reader, Kevin Judice of Dice Molecules put it, quote, I enjoy the sharp writing and no bullshit tone of Timmerman Report. This is journalism worth paying for, end quote. How much do you pay, by the way? It's $149 a year for two to three in-depth analytical articles per week. That's less than a daily coffee habit. For that modest investment, you will enhance your understanding of biotech. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Discounts available for larger groups. Now please join me and Jeremy Levin on the long run. 
Jeremy Levin, Chairman of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today on The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. Appreciate you having me here. So, Jeremy, as you know on this show, The Long Run, I like to go through people's whole life history before I get to their moment of possibility and the interesting things that they're doing at their companies. Uh, for the case of you, we're, I'm going to throw out that model and I'm going to point people to a previous podcast you did with Nature Biotech called First Rounders, where you talked about your life story. I want to refer people to that because today I want us to talk about your role as chairman of bio and some of the major issues facing the industry. Um, but, I, but before I go into that, I do want listeners to know that um, you are a man of substance. Uh, you grew up in South Africa and uh, you're, you escaped apartheid. Your dad was a journalist who opposed the apartheid regime. And that took uh, a moral compass and some courage to follow one's convictions. And I think there's a through line there in your life. Um, and so this is, I think this is a very important conversation that we have today about democracy and the role of the pharmaceutical industry in society. So thank you for doing what you do. Thanks, Luke. It, uh, it's important to me. There is a line and it stems all the way from the Northern Cape in apartheid all the way through the battlefields of Israel through to this country, which is a remarkable country. So I'd be delighted to do that. But at the end of the day, it boils down to one thing. You stand on principle because nothing else matters. And this industry has some principles. It really does. It has a lot of capacity for good. You're, a, you're trained as a scientist and a physician, and now you're out there working hard to create new medicines. Uh, but the, the wider world does not um, appreciate this. This is a moment of, I think, existential crisis for the pharmaceutical industry, the biotech industry, um, how we develop new medicines. Um, the, the political moment uh, is, uh, is, is dire. Um, big tobacco is considered more, in, in a more positive light than what you guys do. This, we, we run the risk of killing the golden goose. And this is like oh, on your shoulders now as the chairman to try to um, preserve the innovation ecosystem. So, Luke, it, you know, it's not so much on my shoulders. This has been starting in 1947 when NIH was invented, essentially conceived of, funded, and then drove the beginnings of innovation in biology in the United States. You have a multi-decade process whereby innovation has surged in the United States in a way that is nowhere else in the world, absolutely nowhere. It is completely unparalleled. Capital markets grew up around it. You had huge scientific base. You have a medical base. You have a patient expectations for new cures. We made that investment as a society coming out of World War II. Exactly. It was built on American it, exceptionalism. It was. We believed that we could do anything. And we would put our tax dollars to work and, and uh, advance the frontiers of science, maintain science and technology leadership sure in the did. world. And, and um, people would benefit in the long run, both here and everywhere. And it was a, you know, you think you just landed on the moon. This was a moment where all possibilities were opened in a way which is absolutely wonderful. And now we face a moment when we are now the pariah. We're the pariah because absolutely the vast majority of Americans today equate the pharmaceutical industry, medicines, with bad things. And yet we need them. And this is tremendously uh, important. So as I look at this and as I think about how to use your words, existential this really is, it is existential. You have a moment where the populace is frustrated with us. That allows politicians to use this moment 
to actually gain advantage. And in this year particularly, as we go into a very rancorous discussion around the presidency and elections, this is a moment where you have various parties using any any possibility to gain additional votes to beat on this industry. And we've given them that on a plate. We have, we have abrogated the link that we have with patients and our primary focus on innovation. And rather, we've allowed the population to think about us only in terms of price as opposed to what value we've helped them. And the fact that we see burgeoning costs every year of old drugs. This is not acceptable. None of us should accept it. But I'd, I'd go one step further. This is not on my shoulders. This is on the shoulders of everybody in the industry. Everybody in this industry. Absolutely everybody in this industry. Everybody has a responsibility to take action. Everybody has to look in the mirror and realistically say, guys, gals, what did we do here? How did we lose the trust of so many people in the population and allow that to now color what is by far the most important and fundamental fact in our industry, which is the delivery of medicine to patients. You got to go back to like basic questions of who are we? What do we do? Why do we do it? I, I, Luke, 100%. That's exactly right. You have to, what is the purpose of this industry? I like to say when you look at a company, if that company vanished, what difference would it be? Well, if our industry vanished, well, where would we be? What would the future of mankind look like? This is what's really important. We can't allow that to be that so-called, if I can use a genetic expression, the delete experiment to happen. But some politicians, unless we actually explain and teach them, that delete possibility is real. It is a very real possibility. If you just look at the two parties in the United States who are at war at the moment, um, you have the Medicare for All proposal, a single-payer system, which uh, would clearly bring, tighten the screws, bring, it, would, it would bring price controls, and um, that would dry up investment. By and large, everyone agrees. Now, if you go to something like you call Medicare for all who want it, I mean, you still are going to have a colossal, powerful buyer that will become more and more powerful over time in all likelihood, plus the consolidation of large private insurers, as you alluded to in your talk earlier today. You could live under a world of monopsony. Like uh, Amazon has imposed deflationary economics, uh, you know, Walmart, Costco, all these like giant colossus that stride over the economy. Pharmaceuticals hasn't had to live under such uh, uh, onerous terms. Those are a couple different options under the Democratic tent. The Republicans are talking about indexing to international uh, prices, uh, which would in effect have a pretty similar kind of effect. I don't know who's going to save the industry from this kind of fate of being reduced to serfhood. So you, I think the fact is nobody's going to save us except ourselves. This is a moment where every single individual in the industry needs to know that they actually do have power, they do have authority, they do speak with a passion, and that they have a right to say what they need to say and say it loudly. But here's, here's, here's the thing. There are ill-conceived notions like IPI where you're trying to compare the pricing in Turkey 
with the pricing in Minnesota. I can't imagine for a minute that any sensible politician can allow something like that to happen. It just simply is something which is incredibly difficult to conceive of. The complexities of the one-party states, uh, the one-buyer states in Europe, do not compare to what we have here. If you, However, having said that, we've also allowed something to grow up, and that is the intermediaries between the innovators, the companies large and small who find new medicines, and the patient. So we have the PBMs who are not adding incremental value. They're taking an added slice. You only have to look at the price of uh, the net to gross. And we keep on talking about net to gross. Well, this is absurd. Net to gross of an automobile? Net to, can somebody imagine a net to gross of an automobile? Let's get down to that. Would you every year see an increment in a price? Let's say, let's take an imported drug. An imported drug. This will be called a, let's call it a Volkswagen. And that Volkswagen every year increases its price. The same model, the 1966 model, every year to now, you increase it by 5%. And oh, by the way, the vast bulk of that 5% price increase goes into the pockets of somebody else besides the manufacturer of the Volkswagen. Right. Could we conceive of that? It's, it's dysfunctional. It it's makes dysfunctional. No, it, it makes no sense. And it's a hard case to make. People don't understand this. They just know that they're paying more and they're not getting more. That's correct. The prices are going up. And our overall health as a society, or you as an individual, it's not getting better. That is correct. And worse yet, by doing this, when they go to the pharmacy to decide what is the medicine that they should choose, and should they pay out of their pocket for that medicine, which they desperately need, or should they consider saving that money to buy something, a new automobile, or buying a dinner, or something like that, can they afford it? The whole concept of being able to afford your medicine that will prolong and make your life productive goes away. That dialogue is critical. And we need to take really concerted efforts to reduce the cost of out-of-pocket. We have to, Luke. We, this is absurdity. We have patients rationing their insulin. Yes. We have cancer patients and their families going bankrupt. Uh, we have just ordinary medicines just being uh, that with no additional innovation being priced at 9%, 10% uh, increases every six months. So we end up paying just so much more. And it's we have permanent patents, pretty much, on a lot of biologics that have been. I've been doing this for 20 years, and I thought the patents would expire on some of these pioneering medicines of the 1990s. They're still there, making billions and billions of dollars. Biosimilars not coming along. I mean, people have. They're upset, and rightfully so, in many, many cases. And what that that moment, that time when you that anger bubbles up obscures something really fundamental. It's what is happening right now in the industry is that you have all of these new curative medicines coming up. And instead of having the debate, which is okay, and which is important, how do we afford to pay for those medicines and bring the value that they bring and cure the disease that we cure, we're having the debate of that that's too expensive. That is not the right debate, but it's colored by this history of some of these drugs going on forever and ever and ever, others having price rises every year where there's no increment in value, and that's not helpful. And this, as you say, it's the best of times and worst of times. The best is that the science has never been better. I mean, yeah. we've got the cell therapies, the gene therapies, 
all kinds of like under underpinning information about the biology. It's never been better understood. Rare diseases uh, are, are suddenly that had no option before are looking more tractable. We're, we're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars or million dollar price tags, but we don't have a system, as you say, that, that can logically look at how much we really ought to pay and, and get to some kind of fair price that rewards the innovator but also ensures maximum access. It's a balance we've got to strike, and we're not—we're doing a terrible job of it. It's a, Luke. It is—it's not a good job at the moment. We're—we're we're constantly battling against the wrong question. There are—it doesn't matter whether you're a small company or a large or a big company. They're both basically today. It's—it's it's one industry effectively. But the array of medicines that each of these different parties brings to the table often differs. So the question is, how can we? get a, the politicians to understand that across this array of different companies, there is an enormous amount of value being generated and that that value is critical. Actually, I would argue it's critical to democracy. You can't have a population which is democratic and half or more of them are not getting the medicines that they need. That just doesn't make sense. So with regard to the perpetual franchises, I think, Luke, we need to actually take a couple of things. We have to congratulate the FDA. I think it's really important we do that because they have made steps to facilitate changes there that have been critical. However, in the payer systems, we really need to tackle that frontally. They are not letting the introduction of many of these new biologics that are out there. And there are. There are if we do not solve for the biologics now, we face something even more important as time goes on. The biologics that you've seen and I've seen for the last 20 years that did not become biosimilars are going to are laying the groundwork for what's going to happen when we have gene therapies, what's going to happen when we have CAR-T therapies, what will happen when the second and third generation of new biologics come on and now their patents expire. Permanent million-dollar drugs. We, we need to tackle this and understand how we'll deal with this at this time. Because if we don't, we just pass the ball down, the anger will grow, and indeed the industry won't be able to show its true value to the society. So I would appeal to those who are really developing these incredible medicines to really think about that. Because if we don't, every sector of our society will be affected. And I can assure you, the cures that are possible today in cancer would never have be, uh, had we have faced this in the past. And the cures that should be present here for Alzheimer's, for heart failure, simply won't come because investors will not want to invest in an industry that's so uh, berated by politicians and subject to constraints, which I think are going to be extremely onerous unless we get ahead of them. Coming back to what you said earlier about the investment coming out of World War II, I mean, we made that conscious decision to invest in science, and that was a, a very prescient one by our, our forebears. <laughs> uh, the United States has amazing basic biomedical research, uh, and we ought to continue to support that. Uh, and we're now beginning to reap what I think of as the innovation dividend. We're actually seeing medicines come out of this. You know, we invested in things like the Human Genome Project, and 10 years later, people said, where are the medicines? Well, actually, now they're, they're here. It, they're it, here. It took longer than yeah. we thought or maybe people expected, but it's here and a lot more are coming. Uh, it makes sense to continue with that, as to continue investing in our tax dollars in basic science and to provide incentives 
through our capital system for people to develop medicines all the way to help patients. Uh, but we need to maintain access. We, we can't put people into bankruptcy just because they got ill. It's morally wrong. So we got to balance here. You and others in biotech are now talking about a, a social contract, a new social contract. How do you think about that? How do you define that? So when one takes, when one starts from the principle that you have a responsibility in the society to both all elements that support you, which include the shareholders, includes the patients, and it includes the broader society. As a company, you simply cannot divorce yourself from that responsibility and connection. So the social compact is designed specifically to state what each company individually means uh, in the way that they're going to drive innovation and ensure that they're, they are focused on patients. In the case of innovation, how are they going to seek uh, to ensure that every single product they have is new, every single is novel, and it's the best possible way that they have it, it's the best possible uh, approach to that disorder, and that's fantastic. And by doing that, they equally at the same time need to be able to say, how am I going to get this to patients? How am I actually going to do derive, how's the society as a whole through each individual patient going to derive benefit? Now, company by company, that will be different because each technology is different. However, the basic principles underlying this need to be across the industry. We've never stated it adequately in the past. Every company needs to subscribe to it. In fact, what they really are saying, our purpose our raison d'etre, the reason that we exist, is for two things, driving innovation and getting the patient the medicines that they need. Those two things. And that if we don't do that, the delete experiment, then both innovation and the patient suffer, and that's a consequence of that. Our economy suffers as a consequence of that. Our society suffers. And oh, by the way, Luke, there's one further step. If you think that we didn't set the stage for a revolution in biology. We did. 70 years of hard work based on the NIH and then huge investment from venture capital, huge investment from the capital markets in the United States. Set the stage for a knowledge base in this industry which is unparalleled. That knowledge base crosses borders. That knowledge base is accessible to everybody around the world. And there are states that will simply say, thank you very much for your investment in the past, and we will now carry the ball forward. That is not acceptable. America is the engine for innovation, should remain the engine for innovation, and we should acknowledge that we have a certain responsibility to ensure that that continues. And that's both at the level of the companies and at the level of the policymakers. Join me at the Washington State Convention Center in Seattle on April 7-8 for the 20th Annual Life Science Innovation Northwest Conference. Kicking off an exciting program is Dr. James Sabri, Global Head of Pharma Partnering at Roche. Additionally, I will be interviewing Dr. Amy Abernethy, Principal Deputy Commissioner at the FDA, in a fireside chat. Visit www.lifesciencewa.org for more information and use promo code 2020 Luke, all one word, capital L, to save $100 on your registration fee. What role does bio have to play here? 
um, because I'll tell you, I've been critical of bio in the past. I've, there's been a lot of blame game going on, pointing fingers at PBMs and insurers and hospitals who, by and large, deserve it. They've been getting away with uh, bad behavior of their own and not taking the same kind of public perception hit as you guys. It's human nature. I understand why people in this industry get defensive and might resent that. But playing the blame game does not solve the problem that we're talking about here. Totally agree. So there was that opportunity in the last election cycle uh, when pharma was feeling a lot of heat around Martin Shkreli, et cetera. It was kind of wasted. We did not fix these problems. Now things are much more serious, I believe, in 2020. What are you going to do differently this time and get out of that politics of the past, this blame game? Luke, you, know, you asked two questions there. Number one, what is the role of bio? And then how do we get out of it? Well, number one, the role of bio is tremendously important because remember, we're not just, we're talking about biotechnology writ large. That is industrial, it's environmental, and it's health. Yes, health is the largest section. But remember, we're facing unprecedented changes in the environment. That means that we need to have and support policies that help in driving new agricultural products, in driving new environmental products that will help us solve what is coming down the pike and we can already see it. So in order to represent those companies and policies, whether they be medical, environmental or agricultural, you need a body that says we understand these technologies, we understand what drives this innovation and we are now going to serve the interests of those companies at the level of the hill, which is very difficult for the central government to understand. These are politicians. They see all sorts of different things. So bio's role is central in the sense that it, it is the voice of multiple constituencies which are critical to us. And they all need their incentives, That's, profit incentives, yes, they which do. are fine It's just healthy. that That is what has made America great. That has distinguished our nation and that is one which we need to focus on. But the organization itself needs to be able to translate what is going on in the, the capital of the most extraordinary nation in the world, in Washington, D.C., and dialogue with them. Over the years, there are many different organizations which have tried to do this. Right now, you have the large pharmaceutical companies which represent their interests through an organization called Pharma. Pharma has its own particular agenda, but it's different from that of bio. Where necessary, we would support them. Where we have different views, we welcome their different views. It's just a different view. But at the same time, bio must focus on two things, how to drive innovation and how to get patient the drugs they need. And those to all of the policies that we do, everything, every policy analysis that we do, every policy that we suggest on the Hill must be focused only on those two principles. And if we, if we keep on focusing on that, the relevance of bio in the context of the evolving industry, the growing industry, becomes more and more important. So we're not necessarily all about pricing. That's, there are others who may deal with that. We're about how do we ensure that policies are put in place that gives access to the patients. It's not about blame. It's about facility. Do you guys need to make some kinds of sacrifices in order to achieve some kind of equilibrium so that we can continue to maintain incentives for innovation to help you do what you do, uh, but in a way that maximizes access, that we can afford, 
that we can live with. Are you guys going to have to just give a little? I, I, Luke, we do. Just to be honest, I think there's many, many occasions when you see companies like Al Nylum, you see companies like Bluebird, who are making accommodations, who are doing their very best to articulate a way of working with the states, a way of pricing their drugs, a way of getting their drugs to the patients as best as they possibly can and are making accommodations. Al Nylum's doing a value-based contract with yes. their first drug and others to come. Bluebird is doing an installment payment system with its gene therapy so that if the drug is still helping people over a period of years, they get the full payment. And if not, they don't get fully paid. That's exactly right. But there are only one or two examples. But imagine what you've just said. I picked out two companies. Imagine the hundreds of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of companies that are out there, each one trying to think about ways of doing this. So I think they're all, all of us, all the small companies are really thinking about it. Now, on the other hand, other side, you know, you could ask the question, why would one ever be compensated for a price rise in an old drug? Our boards across the nation Every single board should perhaps be asking the question, are we going to be able to sustain our models if we consistently reward our management teams by price rises and old drugs? I think the boards need to take a role in this. I think they need to think carefully about that. They need to think carefully about where they should be investing their capital in research or buying back stock. These are important compensation issues that need to be addressed, where compromises can become. Well, but we also, Luke, just let me, sorry, let me finish. We do need to see, absolutely do need to see, changes in the behavior of the PBM and the suppliers. Because while we can make compromises, you can only do that in the context of the system changing at the same time. We've evolved something that is clearly not working, they also need, those different participants in the ecosystem need to acknowledge that we're in a different game. So is there some kind of roundtable here where people, all the key stakeholders recognize that they're, they're in this together and that the whole golden goose could get killed? Not just you guys, but yeah. them too. You, you are quite right. And that's, that's really the dialogue. It's not a question of the big companies talking to the big distributors. Remember, this is all about innovation. Remember that 70% of the pharmaceutical pipeline comes from the smaller companies. So that flow must continue. And that's why the large companies are so supportive and helpful in bio, by the way, just so you understand that it's really a remarkable thing. But then the other side to this is, if you ask for a round table, there isn't one. There is a one-on-one -on -one conversation, and part of what I'm trying to do at Bio is to foster the ability to talk to the four large payers, to have them understand what a crisis we're going through, to talk to the large hospital chain, uh, uh, large hospital chains who are part of this as well. That dialogue has to happen, and it can't just go, it can't just be me. It has to be the successor chairman and the chairman after. And to help that happen in bio, what we've instituted is a very different system from the past. At this stage, I have a vice chairman. It's Paul Hastings. In the past, the, Paul, the vice chairmans were in waiting. That is not what we're doing today. What we're doing is that Paul and I are working in direct concert, completely together. He takes some things, I do others, we dialogue around them. It means that when I hand over to Paul as chairman, he is fully conversant. He has been deeply involved. And as vice chairman, he becomes chairman with a complete seamless change 
on the policy changes that we're trying to adopt. There is no interruption and then restart. The same thing is happening in, uh, it will happen with his vice chairman. So as we look at bio and as we evolve bio, part of what's going on in bio right now, which is rather wonderful, is that when Jim steps down and retires, we, and he's been very generous and he's a, in giving us the time to go through this very turbulent year and help steer us through that. Jim Greenwood, the Jim, CEO of Bio. Yes, Jim Greenwood will retire. And, but nevertheless, we've asked to, he has agreed to work with us through this incredibly turbulent year. He is one of the most articulate spokesperson for the industry. And by the way, a passionate photographer of birds, one of the best I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> Jim, biotech people are human beings too. Who e knew? <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. It's really wonderful. Um, Jim, we will transition to a model where we found somebody that is really focused on only those two items and can deal with the complexity of this industry, which is completely different from what it was when Jim unified it. He unified bio 15 years ago, 16 years ago. So I think we're in a new phase. Governance within the organization has changed. The mission is very clear, patience and, um, and innovation. That's all, nothing more. And anything that doesn't support that, we simply will not spend time on. And then in addition to that, we've, we have now, we will be looking for leadership, which is different from before, but will build on the legacy that Jim has put in place. You mentioned earlier that you have areas of agreement with pharma, the big companies, and areas of disagreement. Um, can you elaborate on what those areas are? It's not really substantive. It's just different in focus rather than a disagreement. Pharma has a big, a big canvas to paint on. Pharma's canvas includes every, as I ran a big company, you have anywhere from 50 to 100,000 people working for you. You could have a portfolio of several hundred major drugs and you have, you're dealing with 150 different countries. This is completely different from what a small company focused on one technology in one area, perhaps in Boston, San Francisco. And I think one of the teachings I have is both of these different organizations have different dynamics that they have to deal with. On the one hand, for example, in pharma, trade issues are critical in drugs, critical. Capital formation, not so much. In bio, capital formation is vital. Every single company focuses on capital formation. On the other hand, new uh, policies that stimulate innovation, that stimulate new types of research, is of interest to both. Because at the end of the day, large pharma will actually subsume what the small companies are doing. And it's, that's the norm. So we do have interests that are similar. We also have interests that are different. And I think we should acknowledge that without blowing it out of proportion. Now, you um, are, as chairman, are trying to mobilize your members around this existential threat, this moment of crisis uh, in which the incentives could just go out the window. They really could. Yes, they could. Um, and you've done some, some things like this uh, petition. I'm not sure you call it that, but you circulated a letter articulating the social contract. You, you said you got a number of companies to sign, not all. What kind of, what was that process like? What kind of reception did you get from various members or people that you wanted to sign on and join you? Well, first of all, I want everybody to join. Um, 
But we have to recognize that each company has its own particular imperative. Each one is an independent organization. Each one has its own board and its own CEO and its own day-to-day life. So what we offered in the letter, and the letter was really written by six of us, was our version of what we think is the beginnings of a dialogue with the outside world. It doesn't necessarily mean that every company needs to subscribe to everything in the letter, but in actual fact, it is the principles under which we think it is critical to stimulate two things, innovation and patience, care. That's all we really were trying to get at there. I would acknowledge that it's probably not a perfect letter, actually. No letter ever is. It's not a, we can, even the constitution gets morphed. And we ourselves here expect that letter to be interpreted slightly differently by each company. But what we would like is for each company to use it as a framework to begin to think about themselves, to think about their relationship within their, within their community, and to use it as a way of dialoguing with the community after they've taken action. With regard to the people who signed on, we had an enormous response. We gave them a very short period of time to respond. Over 200 people signed on initially. We now have literally hundreds of others who've asked to sign or be involved. We may go back to them and say, look, sign on. But signing on is less important than actually taking action. With regards to those who decided not to sign, there are quite a number of them, actually. There were those who said, look, I am anxious about exposing myself because I'm launching a drug uh, in some way, ill-defined manner. That may or may not affect how people perceive me if I write the social contract. I could be seen as a hypocrite if yes. I sign this and that's, charge a high price. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. So I want to keep my options open. I want to keep my options open. And look, that's fine. That is what it is. But the reality is that we hope that when they look at this, they need to think about the value that their drug is taking. And if they focus on getting access to all the patients that they need, then that's the way to be thinking about the social contract. So you've got hundreds of people signing on, but this is not all of the membership of BIO. And this is not even an official statement of BIO as an organization. I, I do not think it's appropriate for a minute for a trade organization to be involved in this. This is a statement of the individual CEOs, of their expression of what is they are willing to, how they're willing to run their companies. And that's certainly not the role of a trade company. It's a trade organization. It's not there to tell companies how to run. And it's certainly not there to tell them how to price their medicines. That is absolutely unacceptable. What it is is for these individual companies, CEOs, to say, we individually really believe in these principles. It's important to us, important to America. Bio as a trade group needs to advocate to create the conditions under which companies can flourish and develop new medicines. That is exactly right, Luke. That's exactly right. The role of bio here is to facilitate an understanding in the Congress and the FDA, NIH, of what's really important for this innovation, and then ask the question, how can we facilitate that? How each company interprets that is their business. That's the essence of both competition and also for the benefit of of the capital markets that people can see that individual CEOs, individual companies are behaving differently and seem to be more successful or less successful in what they're doing and people choose to invest in them. Now, let's just say um, you're successful with this letter and get half of the industry or whatever to sign on to these principles and even start um, 
you know, matching up their deeds with their words. Um, that would be best case scenario. I'm sure you'd be happy with that. Um, why should anybody care? Like, would that actually make a difference toward solving these problems that we've been talking about? Look, it's not about a letter. It's about behaviors. The letter is a statement of principles which will be interpreted by these companies. The interpretation of that and its success, why people should worry, it should not be worried, people, why people should think about what it will do, is it will, it will make a statement to the outside world, to those in each state that we're involved in, each legislator that sees us. We actually do have principles, and by God, they're really extraordinary uh, principles. They are very real. They're about patience and about innovation and nothing else. And then what will happen, and I believe if we are fortunate in that, if we can drive this home, if we can make people really do what they say they're going to do, not make, if they will participate. Yeah, you don't have an enforcement no, mechanism. No, there's You're no not enforcement. the Department of Justice. No way, no way. Thank heavens for that. <laughs> We're relying upon the moral belief of the individual CEOs and their boards that this is a good way of running a business. Economically, it makes sense. It's not just about staving off a crisis. It's about bringing you back to what the principles of what we're doing are about, driving innovation and associating with patients. That is about sustainable, that's a sustainable business. And go back to what I said before. If it didn't matter, if we didn't matter, and we did the delete experiment, what kind of a crisis would we face? So here you have statements under which you can build your purpose, have the purpose to be a sustainable, vibrant industry. And so I believe there, it is important that we do this because it allows us to be able to make that, give that recognition to the outside world and give the recognition to the inside parts of the company that we should be existing and working harder. Do you really think that the message is, is getting out there among the members? Because I'll say I, I talk to lots of these members and I get a mixture of like some blank looks when I, you know, I, I talk about like, I think that, you know, the hammer is coming down. I think this, this is real and serious and, and like going around JP Morgan, I just didn't get the sense that everybody was on the same page here, that it's this dire. Some people think it is, but they got this kind of deer in the headlights look to them. <laughs> like, I don't really know, like, I know it's bad, but I don't quite know what to do or how we're going to get out of this. You know, I'm sure you get all kinds of reactions too, right? You know, I do. But the reality is it, one can't expect everybody to have the insight that it's here. And it is here. There is no doubt that it's here. This is a con confluence of a number of really dire events, industrial change, political change, total social discourse change. These are, and by the way, a media blitz which makes it nearly impossible to distinguish between what's important and what's not important. But you can feel it. All you have to do is to walk around the halls of Congress to hear the direct statements from some of the leaders that we have and have elected there about what they're hearing from their constituencies. And if we do not take note of that, then we are more fool us. We're a smart industry, a super smart industry. These blank looks that you saw, well, hopefully that's people who are irrelevant. The ones who really should matter are those who really are going to take action and walk around and now start talking about how they're going to make a difference. But these people in Congress, many of whom are well-meaning, as you said earlier, um, they, they say things that are just 
nonsensical. Things like, can't, uh, well, we already pay for the NIH, you know, can't we just, you know, the, the government can develop these drugs. Um, they should know better. Luke, you, I, 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 you, you're expecting too much. Let, let us ask the question as who really gets elected into our electorate. These are people who, gosh, would you want to be elected today? Would you run for office? Hell no. <laughs> exactly. So here you have people who live their lives. They get multiple different inputs. Most of them, for example, would pass legislator on manufacturing of automobiles. Well, hang on a second. How many of them understand that? Some others would pass legislation on the digital world. How many of them understand that? So here we're asking a lot of these individual leaders that they understand it. It's our job to translate it as much as we can. I'm not sure the industry even like fully understands things all the way down to first principles the way a lot of people should. So like if you go to an academic science lab, I think a lot of these PIs, they understand like, yeah, I kind of every once in a while, it's probably a good idea to talk to a congressman to advocate on behalf of science and what, what we do. I mean, they don't do it nearly enough, but they do understand that the NIH, the taxpayer, is ultimately what supports their lab. That connection is very clear to them. Pharmaceutical industry, by the same token, where does the pricing power derive from? Yeah. It comes from our willingness as taxpayers, insurance premium payers, copay payers. It's all of us willing to say, we're going to support this activity because we get something of value out of it. And people don't see that. That, if that foundation has been eroded. And so this is why public perception matters. And, and why, like, your member companies have got to get this and talk to their neighbors, talk to Chuck Grassley, uh, you know, talk to everybody you can about, like, NIH is important, but it's not the whole story. You know, it's, um, it's also part of uh, being a human being in our society. You, yeah, I know that's very general. What do I mean by that? I mean, really, that as an individual, what you really want to be able to do is to know you're having an impact on your society. Because if you don't, you're simply floating along there. You're doing nothing. You're basically not, you're not going west. You're sitting somewhere not moving forward. What we should expect to see from great scientists is more engagement with the politicians, more engagement, uh, teaching them about this incredibly exciting new area. I welcome that. I know that we have huge institutions, and when you get huge institutions like the NIH and the FDA, you, it's really, they are enormous ships. Driving them is nearly impossible, but they rely on us being able to go out and convince investors and politicians that it's worthwhile having rigorous uh, FDA processes, incredibly exciting free science being generated at the NIH. They, they are, these are great institutions. They that are have been great built for decades, great and we should be proud of them. Look at what China's trying to do. China's, China is trying to imitate what we've put in place there post World War II. I, Luke, China will imitate what us what we do, and worse than that, unless we are very, uh, unless we understand exactly how to do this, China will have the advantage of us having crippled our industry, and they'll simply say, "Thanks a lot. We've got this." come back and talk to us when you need your medicines. That is not an acceptable answer. We need to have a balanced relationship with all nations, and certainly this one should never give up the strategic advantage it has in biotechnology, never. You mentioned earlier in your talk to the members this morning that um, 
it's important to go out and talk across the aisle. I mean, you're a Democrat, but you said you also own a, you're a farmer and you own a gun. <laughs> and I love that because it's a, it puts a tangible um, visual around the basic fact that people are complicated. We have many dimensions. All of us do. And there's a tendency now in our information ecosystem to pigeonhole people around stereotypes, around you're, you're this one thing, so you can't be another. And it makes it nearly impossible to have constructive conversations with people that we disagree with. Uh, that's no place for a democracy to, to operate in. It can't. There is no way that a democracy can allow for people not just to be stereotyped, to be actually pigeonholed, in, to use your word, and therefore to become objectified. Now, where you see objectification playing a role, it did. It played a role in the Soviet Union. It played a role in the 1930s when the Nazis and the Soviets really began to construct their or deconstruct their societies into what we then learned about for the next 40 years as being absolutely awful and the destruction it brought to this world was terrible. Objectifying individuals as, for example, you're right and I'm left, really doesn't allow any kind of dialogue. It's a complete waste of time. What you have to do, which is hopefully what we have here, is a highly sophisticated society that has the ability for all parties to sit down and talk. And yes, compromise. You know, that's a terrible word, right? But compromise is the essence of getting to a solution. I have friends that I grew up with in the upper Midwest who are Trump voters. And um, I talk to them. I have in-depth conversations with them. I go climb mountains, right? I mean, you spend time in the tent. Like, it's kind of like part of the deal. You're going to have, like, serious, substantive conversations. Members of my own family or friends are like, how can you talk to those people? They're just horrible and corrupt and wrong. And I'm like, we disagree about certain things. But, you know, we also have things in common. If, if we stop talking, if we, you know, put ourselves up on a pedestal, like I'm ideologically right and the other side is evil... We will definitely not solve complicated problems like this, that's for sure. That is for sure. And we, you can't, whoever you vote for, there must be the ability to have a talk and have a discussion and a rational, a rational discussion with somebody who disagrees with you. Because what is that about? You actually learn things all the time. You learn about areas that you don't know anything about. And each one of us is formed by the circumstance that we were raised in. For example, myself, as I, you started out this conversation, I'm raised by a family that was stripped of everything, twice. I've seen several wars. I don't like any of that. And at the end of the day, I walk into a circumstance like America, which is such a treasure of a nation, such a treasure of a nation, with the view that there is so much rich, so much good here, that if we allow the forces that try and partition us try and partition us, and there are those who are trying to do that. If we allow them to be successful, then the essence of this great democracy really is, uh, will be questioned by many. So how do you practice this? As Chairman of Bio, you go to Washington, D.C., and you meet with lawmakers, presumably from both sides of the aisle. Um, how do you approach them? What are these conversations So like? one of the wonderful things about Bio and also others, is that 
whether you're speaking to people in the West Wing, and I've had the privilege of doing that, or in Speaker Pelosi's office, or in, uh, in, uh, in the Leader McConnell's uh, office, or for that matter, in Senator Grassley's office, there's, not a, there's only one approach for me, and that is how can they please understand what will benefit innovation and therefore America's strategic capabilities, and at the same time, how will they, how will their actions impact patients? Because if they do impact patients negatively by removing the types of new medicines that we have, by not ensuring that they get access, by not ensuring that you have a flourishing, innovative uh, environment, then in actual fact, their actions are damaging. And I, I find no difficulty in having that dialogue, irrespective of what party individuals are. The question is for them, not for me. The question is for them, what kind of an America do they want to see? And I'm always impressed when I meet some of the leaders, not all, that they really do see uh, a future where they can have dialogue with each other. And they do want that. Do they all recognize that this is a source of competitive advantage for the United States and an enduring one? And it's a gift to the world that we've been uh, so, so good and steadfast at biomedical research and all the way through the value chain. You know, Luke, it's not a gift. We make money out of this, okay? So I think what's really interesting is about this fact is that do they realize it? Some do, some don't. But I think at the end of the day, those who are most thoughtful, those who really believe that the America they want to give to their children and that they're the children of those that support them has to be an America that is rich, strong, and robust, not just <laughs> rich and strong, but is robust. In other words, robust in the way that it's driving innovation. There are others that simply look at this in a very short-term fashion. I would hope that the majority fall into the former case because America is remarkable and it remains remarkable. And if they do, if they take steps to take short-term damaging actions, which is a minority set of people trying to do this, then those individuals will end up harming the competitive advantage and what they give to their children. Because we, I inherit what was, and my children will inherit what was done in, this, in 1947 when the NIH was founded. We today are harvesting so much and we're investing so much and we're giving no gifts abroad. We're making money out of it. I think it requires moral leadership um, yeah, we, I, I agree with you. We, it does, Luke. It, we, had, uh, we had that coming out of World War II. And, um, you know, if, if all you want to do is maximize your profits for the next quarter, I mean, you know, you can work at a bank or something. I mean, that's, I don't think the biopharmaceutical industry is really the place. Um, and, you know, we can con if you continue on on that course, which we've been, I, I think that will kill the industry um, without a values reset. And that's really why I believe this kind of a voice around the compact is a good beginning for us to make our statement. But we do need to promulgate that in Washington, D.C. and in the state level, because you're right. If you look at a short-term reaction, that the only thing that matters is the dollar that you make tomorrow, as opposed to the 100 or $1,000 you'll make in a month, and a million dollars that you'll make in a year, then we're done. 
because all that'll happen is we will fragment and people will run every corner. By the way, I think that this, whether you be a Wall Street titan, whether you be a politician in Washington, D.C., whether you be a CEO or, for that matter, a bench scientist in a company, all need to appreciate that short-termerism is destructive to the value that we actually have as an industry. Now, we're talking about some pretty grim stuff here, um, that we're going to have a bumpy, wild ride this year, for <laughs> sure. I mean, this is like the safest statement, right? Oh, yes. It's, it's going to be white-knuckle time for the industry uh, as we head into the summer and the fall. Um, do you see a scenario? What's the, what's the positive scenario that we could come out of this and have this conversation in 2021 and, and get to a better equilibrium where the, the world at large and biopharmaceuticals can live together in, in a social contract? You know, in a storm, the most important thing that you can possibly do if you're in your boat is to keep calm. And if you keep calm and you keep your eye on where you're trying to go, you'll get there. If you panic and you start doing irrational, short-term things, you will destroy it. So I think there is a positive here. I do believe that the vast majority of the CEOs are actually calm. They don't care for it. They don't like what they're seeing. But I think they can speak with a concerted voice, one which is measured, thoughtful, and takes into consideration some of the constraints. But in order to be successful, Luke, it's critical. In order to be successful, we need to look into our own mirror and look at our own faces and ask, what did we do wrong? We can't just pass this off to everybody. We did do things wrong. We need to call out those bad actors, and it's not a Scarelli moment. It's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than that. We need to ask the question, have we constructed the incentives in our compensation and the way that we run our companies to focus only on patience and innovation? Or have we structured it for short-term profit and therefore maximizing every buck we can make out of the patients today out of old drugs? These compensation issues need to be addressed. I've said this many times. It's what drives many people, and I think it's the obligation of the boards to do that. I would also say that, you know, allow bio and its board and its individual to construct the right kind of measured approach to deal with Congress. We will do. I've got absolute confidence in that. No panic, no sharp edges. This is about a dialogue. It's not about a destruction. It's not about win or lose. It's about how can we get things done. And I think that sets us up for 2021. We will have a new, I don't know what the elections bring. I do know that this is uh, a moment of extreme political and media turmoil. Very difficult to dissect through it and actually read what's going on. But I do know that in a storm, just keep to your principles. And that's what we're going to do. Jeremy Levin, thank you very much for joining me today on The Long Run. Luke, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.